Bob. <laughs> He's just showing off now. If you knew what a miracle that was. He's just walking across the room. It's pretty cool. Hey, uh, I wasn't planning on saying this, but I know the question that's going to be asked of me regularly is, are you okay with this? This is exactly what I think God wants us to do, the, the waiting till the end of the year or so. And I'm excited to see what God has for us next. I've said to the elders and to the core teams, I think we are to get ready for the next decade and to prepare whatever that means leadership-wise. Um, I want what God wants, and I'm excited to do what God's asked me to do this week and next week. And um, my life isn't what I thought it would be now, so I'm guessing it probably won't be what I think it'll be then, but as long as we still be obedient in the day, it'll be fine. So, so I'm excited for everything that God's doing. Hey, um, last week we launched a series we, we're calling Yeshua the Prequel. And for those, those of you who don't know, Yeshua is just Jesus' name in the Hebrew. That's what his mom would have called him. That's what his family would have called him. That's what his friends would have called him. They wouldn't have called him Jesus. That's, that's our way of translating Yeshua. And the series itself was birthed out of a study in John chapter 5. And there's this uh, pretty profound moment when Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, and he says something that's a little bit shocking. In John 5, verses 39 to 40, this is Jesus talking, and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. You know, the truth of the matter is, this is an amazing book. This is God's truth. This is God's inspired word for us. And we are called to meditate on it. We're called to soak in it. There's actually passages that talk about eating the word. Like, we are to, to devour the word. We're supposed to know it and, and apply it into our lives. But the truth is, this book never saved anyone. And as crazy as that sounds, and as some people are uncomfortable saying that, what Jesus is trying to say to us is if you read this book, no matter where you are, front or back, beginning or end, if you read this book and you are not mindful of me, if you don't see me in the scriptures, Jesus is saying to these religious leaders, then you completely missed the point. Because I am the purpose of the book. I am the center of the book. So this series is really a way for us to say, well, if that's truth, how do we go back and look at some of the common stories and begin to see Jesus in this way? So there's a discipline in this for us to study the word always with this understanding that Jesus is there, that these scriptures testify about Jesus. So when we look at the Old Testament, we actually discover it was Jesus who was standing beside Abraham debating over the fall of Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember the story? And, and Abraham is saying, what if I could only find 10 righteous people? What if I could only find five righteous people? Which is a crazy story in and of itself. But it was Jesus that was there. When Moses held up the snake and said to the people, look upon the snake and you'll be saved, it was a foreshadowing of Jesus. All throughout the scriptures, we see Jesus. So he's in the stories. He's in the prophecies. He's in the scriptures because all of the scriptures testify to Jesus. So in the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Exodus. We're going to look at the, the Passover story, if you will. We're going to look at the story of Joseph. We're going to look at the story of, of Moses striking the rock in the desert. And we're going to continue to ask the question, so what does this have to do with Jesus? Where is Jesus in this story? The challenge for you and I is to read the scriptures through the lens of Yeshua. To always be looking for Jesus. To always be understanding how does this point to Jesus and what does it mean for me. 
I don't know if you were here last week. I hope that you were, but Norflet launched the series and, and he did a great job. It was just, it was so cool to have him finally preach. It was a blessing to me. I hope it was a blessing to you as well. But yeah, amen. It was cool. Um, so he really pointed out that it, Jesus always was. He went right back to Genesis and, and, and John and he showed us that Jesus was and is and is to come. He talked about his power. But he asked this question and I don't know if he meant the question to be as prominent, at least for me, as it was. But the question he asked is, if you were trapped in a dark, dark alley and the thugs were bearing down on you, who would you choose, Jesus or Batman? Right? And we, we did the same thing when he asked the question. We kind of snickered. Now, the, there's an easy answer because Jesus is real, Batman's make-believe. But the more I've thought about the question, the more the question has actually haunted me a little bit. Because the question really is, when you are in peril, when you are really in peril, and being in a dark alley, thugs bearing down on you, it's a good description of peril. And you have Jesus on this side, and you have some other source of power on this side. Maybe for you, it's, it's your revolver. Maybe it's, maybe it's Superman. Maybe you don't like Batman. Whatever you would come to think of as your source of power, which would you choose? It's worth thinking about the question. Because the truth of the matter is, if even for a second we hesitate, if even for a second we think, well, I know how to use a weapon, I know how to use a gun. I'm not sure how Jesus is going to answer this question, so I'm choosing my whatever, my source of power. Then we choose the created over the creator, right? Or if we choose what's on this side, we choose what we think will save our lives and forget that he's the very one that gave us life. It's really about us understanding who it is that's on our left and what it is that's on our right. The question has really stirred in me this need for us to understand who Jesus really is. And part of looking at these scriptures, part of looking through the Old Testament, is it helps us to get a better understanding how powerful he is, how awesome he is, how he does need to be the center of our lives. So we're going to look at a very familiar story. I think probably, although I don't know how somebody would measure this, the most familiar story in all of scripture. Today we're going to look at the story of Noah and the flood and the ark. And we're going to hold on to two questions. And really, we're going to hold on to these questions for the rest of this series. And the questions are, what does this have to do with Jesus? And what does this have to do with me? Or what I like in that question is, so what? It's great to study the Word of God, but a good question for you to ask yourself all the time is, so what? What does it mean? What should I do with it? How does it change who I am? How do I apply this today? So here's a very familiar story. The challenge for me is to bring it to you in such a way that you walk out of here with some sort of application. That's the so what. So grab your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 6. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to narrate the story a little bit. I'm going to tell the story. And we're just going to stop in different sections and read a passage of Scripture here and there and then talk about what those Scriptures mean. So before we do that, I want to pray. So while you're looking for Genesis chapter 6, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that you are with us even if we don't know how to answer the question in the alley. That you know that about us yet you still love us. That you uh, are in the journey with us as we discover who you are more and more and more. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the inspired word of God. Thank you for the story that most of us have known since we can remember. Lord, I pray today that you actually would bring something new and something that we can apply to our lives out of this familiar story. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start by saying that I think it's uh, phenomenal, crazy, weird that this is a children's story. I mean, you got to stop and you got to think about it. Because in truth, it's a really horrific story. It's a catastrophic story. It's, 
It's profoundly sad, yet it's a story that we've used with kids throughout the generations. And then as I was thinking about it, I got to thinking, well, it's not really all that strange for us because when you think about children's stories, children's stories are a little twisted anyway. Like think about Hansel and Gretel. Like, right, it's a witch trying to eat the kids. Like, really, this is what we tell our kids. Or uh, think about Little Red Riding Hood, right? There's a wolf, and it's, there's, there's like a gruesomeness to our kids' story. And then I started thinking about the whole Rockabye Baby, Treetop, Bow Breaks, Cradle Will Fall. Like, we just say all those things we don't even stop and think about. Like, there is a weirdness to children's stories. And then I got thinking, well, it's a good thing that our kids have a poor grasp of the human language when they're babies. Otherwise, no baby would sleep ever if they knew what we were singing to them or telling them. But this story is kind of similar in some ways. Meg and I went and saw the movie this week. Um, and the only reason I went to see the movie is I'm not a movie guy. I won't make a lot of movie references as I teach because I just don't go to very many movies. But I feel like I needed to go to this one because I feel like everybody's going to wonder why. I wonder if he saw Noah. So we went and saw the movie. And here's what I'd say. Um, it's not worth your time. I, 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 don't think it was, I don't think it was worth your time or energy. And I would say this. They did a terrible job of staying to Scripture. So if you go to the movie, just go in the same way you would go to see Transformers or The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings. It's just, it's an action thriller. But scripturally, it's silly. They, they just, they go places that you're just like, uh, it, it's not even accurate. So do not get your theology from the movie. No, if you decide to go, bless you, fine. Just be careful to realize they weren't really very careful with the scriptures. But I will say this. There's two things that came out of the movie that have stuck with me. One is they did a great job of showing the, the evil and wickedness of man. You really can see the depravity of society when you watch the movie. That, they did a great job with that. And I think they did a great job with showing just how horrific the flood really was. That it really isn't a kid's story. You shouldn't take your kids to see Noah, the movie. It, it really did a good job of showing just how horrific it is. So, so all that to say, 1,600 years after creation, something begins to happen. And we see it unfolding in Genesis chapter 6. So we're going to read verses 5 and 6 together and unpack this. Verses 5 and 6 says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination and thought of the human heart was only evil all the time. And the Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. There's two things I want us to see from this, these first two verses. And the first thing is we, we need to see is we need to see that sin and wickedness had taken over. That sin and wickedness was, was just, it was part of the DNA of people. And, and people were devour, literally devouring each other. There was, there was little or no regard for life. There was oppression. There was injustice. There was pain. There was suffering. There was self-inflicted pain. There was other-inflicted pain. That there was just a tremendous amount of, of just ugliness in the world. I think it's such a graphic way to, to write when the writer says every inclination of thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. There isn't a lot of redemption in that statement. Evil had taken over. People had given themselves over to sin. And then it says God's heart was deeply troubled. God's heart was deeply troubled. And that's what I found myself thinking about the most as I put this talk together is God's heart was deeply troubled. Some translations, the New King James actually says, and he was grieved in his heart. God was sad. God was sad at what he saw. He was sad, and he actually says he actually regretted making humans. 
He was grieved because he saw the pain. He was grieved because he saw the pain we were inflicting on one another. He was grieved because he saw the amount of, of injustice and oppression that existed. It's gut-wrenching to see that. So think about this. Have you ever had a, a good friend, maybe even a family member, maybe one of your children or a sibling, who, who is just going to make a terrible decision and you know it? You, you, you see them making a bad decision and you know the end result is going to be pain and suffering. And you see that play out and you see their marriages fall apart or you see them destroy their relationship with their kids or you see them get into an addictive lifestyle and you, you watch it happen. Just think how hard that is. It's been one of the hardest parts of, of even the ministry that I'm in is working with people and, and telling people and then knowing they're going to make a bad choice and then seeing them make a bad choice and then seeing their lives fall apart. Well, think about God. He sees it tenfold, hundredfold, a millionfold. These are his children. This is his creation. And he's seeing the pain. He's seeing the suffering, he's seeing the, not just the self-inflicted pain, but the pain that people are putting on each other. And he's seeing all that and he's saying, I am sad that I've done this. I regret that I've made man. And then keep reading in, in verse seven and eight. It says, so the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I've created. And with them, the animals, the birds, the creatures that move along the ground, I regret that I have made them. Verse 8 says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. In his grief and in his regret, God desires to see no more oppression. God desires to see no more self-inflicted and other-inflicted pain. And he says, enough is enough. I'm done. And he decides to wipe the human race from the earth. But then verse 8, and this is a profound part of the, the talk today, the, that verse 8 says, but Noah... God decides he's going to wipe out the face of the humans from the face of the earth. And then it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. One thing we have to understand is that God is always the initiator. That God sees Noah. And God moves towards Noah. And Noah responds to God's movement towards him and something profound happens. So look at verse nine. It says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. There's a spiritual principle we have to understand here and the Apostle Paul helps us to understand it when he says that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, Abraham believed what God was saying to him, and God imputed, gave him righteousness, and made him righteous. And if that's true of Abraham, it's true of Noah, and it's true of us, that Noah didn't do something to earn God's favor. He didn't do something to be righteous in God's eyes, that he believed, and God imputed righteousness to him. God is the initiator. God is the one who moves towards Noah, and Noah responds and God imputes righteousness and makes him blameless. It's a work of God. So then Noah is called to build an ark without any help from gigantic rock people. If you went to the movie, you know what I'm talking about. If you didn't, then they're not in there. You can go back and read the scriptures three or four times. You're not going to find any gigantic rock people. And amazingly, God says, Noah, build me an ark. And, and, and we don't stop and think about it. Amazingly, Noah does it. Look, it's never rained before. So God says, hey, I'm going to bring rain. Noah probably had to say, um, wait, what's rain? Right? We take for granted at that time the, the earth was, was watered by a dew that settled on the earth. So first he started with that, and then he said, I'm going to bring a flood. And you know what Noah would have to say? Wait, wait, wait. 
What's a flood? Because he hadn't seen a flood before, so no rain, no flood. And then he says build an ark. And best guess is it took Noah probably 75 years. I like looked all over the place. How long did it take Noah? And most scholars say it took 75 years to build an ark. So Noah is a picture of endurance. So I think it's fascinating. We didn't plan this, but we're doing kids stuff today. If you're here and you have kids, you should stay for kids stuff. But look what the virtue of the month is. Endurance. Sticking with what you started, even when it gets tough. Think about Noah. Think about the endurance that he must have had for 75 years amidst the, the, the ridicule, amidst the doubt. Think about like how often he must have thought to himself, did he really say build an ark? Because this is a lot of work. Did he really tell me to build an ark and all the animals are good? I mean, he must have had moments in 75 years. He must have had some pretty big moments of doubt. But he had incredible endurance as well. He stayed with it. He had faith. And Genesis 6, says, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. I want to be Noah. I want to do everything just as God asked me to. What a cool label to have over you on your on your tombstone Doug he did everything God asked him to Noah he did everything God commanded to him amidst the doubt amidst the ridicule amidst, amidst the passing of time Noah did everything I struggled to stick with things for weeks let alone 75 years it's an amazing picture so the floods come and the, the rain start and it says the water came up from the ground and Noah his wife his three boys and their wives all get onto the ark and for 40 days the, the waters come and the, the, worth, the, the entire earth is, is submerged. And then for 150 days, they float around in the water as the waters begin to recede. You know what I think is fascinating too is that there are over 600 flood legends around the world. In non-Christian, non-biblical societies, there's over 600 different flood stories that archaeologists and sociologists have found in other societies. Well, if really all of man came from the people that were on that boat, then it would make sense that their heritage, their written and oral traditions would go back to a flood story. So we find these small villages and rural areas and they have a, their own story of a day when the earth was covered. And I just think that's so faith building. For me, that's like just affirmation that this isn't just legend. It isn't just a story. It's truth. It really did happen. So the scriptures say God didn't forget Noah and the water receded. Noah and his family and all the animals came out of the ark and then and, and God establishes a new order. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. He says, look, um, now the animals are going to be afraid of you. He actually says now it's okay to to eat animals. So if you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry, but it's in there. And so you can actually eat animals at this point. And then he sets up a different justice system. He talks about capital punishment and puts a different kind of justice in order to kind of make for a better society norms. And then he promises, I'm never going to flood the earth again. And he gives us the rainbow. So that's the story. In a nutshell, that's the story of Noah. But remember what the two questions are. What were they? What does this have to do with Jesus? And what does that have to do with me? Or so what? The answer to the first question really comes in layers. What does this have to do with Jesus? There are so many different layers to the, to the answer to this question. But the fact of the matter is that this is a graphic and, and real picture of God's view of sin, of God's judgment, but also of God's grace. See, the, the fact is, God takes sin pretty seriously. We see in the story of Noah that it actually grieves God. And we also see that God judges sin. And judgment isn't a very popular topic. As a matter of fact, millions of books are sold when someone will say, hey, God's judgment isn't real. Heaven isn't, and hell isn't real. There is no judgment out there. 
Because that's what we would like to hear. But if, if you can see anything in the story of Noah and the ark is judgment's real. The people really were judged and they really did drown. It really did happen. And then Jesus in his own life, when he's talking to the religious leaders, he says, hey, when I come back again, so he's talking about his second coming, he says, it's going to be like the days of Noah. People are going to be doing everyday things. People are going to be going about their everyday business. And when I come, judgment will come and then it will be too late. And I know this isn't the popular subject in church these days, but it's real and it's part of the stories. We need to recognize that the wage of sin really is death. But the rest of the passages, the wages of sin is death, but God grieved at the sin of the people and, and he decided he's going to wipe the people off the face of the earth, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to hang on to that. We need to recognize that, that while there is judgment in the world, that God has given us a way out, that God has given us safe passage. The story reminds us of God's judgment, but it also reminds us of God's grace. The ark is a metaphor for Jesus himself. Jesus is seen in the ark. He is to be our place of refuge in the storm. He is to be the one we run to when the world is falling apart. Jesus is our place of refuge. Jesus is the place of safety. There was one door to get into the ark. If you look at how it was ark, it was one door. Jesus says, I am the door. The only way to safety is through me. The only way Noah was going to be saved was through the ark. So we have this clear metaphor and picture of Christ and what he offers to us in the wake of death, in the wake of destruction. And even the person of Noah Noah himself is a reminder of Jesus. Through one man, through his, his obedience, through his suffering, the entire world is saved. So we see Jesus all over the story, and it reminds you and I that what we do with Jesus actually matters. How we view Jesus, what we do with the story of Jesus, actually makes a difference in our lives. One path is death, and the other path is life. But the problem is, as humans, we fail to see the amazing and glorious invitation that Jesus offers. As a matter of fact, we tend to think in our humanness that following Jesus is going to be limiting, or it's going to be confining, or it's going to be boring. If I do what Jesus wants me to do, my life is going to be kind of a drag. I remember so clearly those days when I first started to walk with the Lord and, and, and being like concerned that I'm going to be the most boring person ever now. All the things I like to do, I'm not going to get to do. So I want to use a little illustration here. Imagine, if you will, this fence goes as far as your eye could see. I couldn't figure out how to build a fence that goes as far as your eye could see. So you have to use your imagination. But there's a fence. And what God says to us is, look, I want you to stay on this side of the fence. I want you to stay over here because over here is, is everything I have for you. Don't go on that side of the fence. But in our humanness, when we look at the fence, we think to ourselves, no, that's confining. Now, that fence is, is trying to hold me back. Man, I, I don't want to be stuck behind a fence. I want real freedom. I want to do what I want to do. And so we're like sheep who see a greener pasture on the other side, even if it isn't greener. And so we wander to the other side of the fence. But as soon as we get on this side of the fence, we begin to discover that there is pain and there's suffering and there's addiction 
And there's all kinds of trauma that doesn't only come into our lives, but comes into the lives of the people that we interact with. Over here is pain and suffering. Over here is life with Christ, right? And so we wander to the other side of the fence. And what we thought was going to be more freedom, the Bible actually says, becomes our master. We become enslaved to the things on this side of the fence. And the story of the ark, the story of Noah is, look, I have made a way for you to get back to this side of the fence. I have made a way for you to be in the green pastures. And then there's this phenomenal thing that even after we accept Jesus into our lives, even after we become devout followers of Christ, we still have this tendency to see things over there and to wander across to the other side of the fence. And our eternal security is there, and I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but we still bring all kinds of pain and suffering. The scripture says the wages of sin is death. And the truth is, even if you're going to secure your place in heaven, even if you know Jesus, when you willfully step out of God's, God's desire for you, when you step into sin, you bring death into relationships, you bring death into all kinds of places in your life, because the fact of the matter is, you cannot play with sin. It will always catch up to you. And so what's the answer? Do we go on this side of the fence and then just bear down and, and think harder and, 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 and grab on and say, Look, I just got to figure it out. It's all about self-will. I got to figure out how to stay on this side of the fence. And the answer is no. This has nothing to do with, with self-will or self-help or just bearing down and trying to figure it out. When you grow in your understanding of God, when you really get to the place where you understand God's all-consuming love for you, when you really have this, this understanding of God's compassion for you, it actually changes your desire. It actually changes your willingness to go to the other side of the fence. When you know what you have in God, you, you wouldn't even desire to walk on the other side of the fence. So our problem isn't a, a will problem. Sometimes it's a knowing problem. If we're in the dark alley and we choose anything but Jesus, it's because we don't know Jesus the way Jesus wants us to know him. If we wander to the other side of the fence, it's because we don't know all that we have on that side of the fence, we don't understand what it is in the pasture that God has called us to. Jesus came to make God known. He said, I came to make the Father known. Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his unbelievable sacrifice for you and I was to display the love of God, to help us to know God more. The Apostle Paul prayed over and over. Almost every one of his letters somewhere in there talks about knowing God more, having greater knowledge or depth of insight, that you'd know God, his height and width and depth of his love because Paul knew that we don't have a doing problem, we have a knowing problem. That the more you know God, the more it will change what you do. This isn't about self-will. I had a chance to sit through Revolution this week, and I just went down there just to see what's going on. And Revolution is our high school ministry. If you have a high school kid who's not going to Revolution, please have your kid go to Revolution. It is a good thing. It's where they're going to find great peer groups. It's where they're going to hear great teaching and worship. They need to be a part of Revolution. So there's the commercial for that. But I went down there just to to watch, to see what was going on. And Carl was teaching. He was teaching about the woman who was caught in adultery and was brought to Jesus. And just to catch you up on the story a little bit, if you don't know, the Pharisees find this woman in adultery. They bring this woman to Jesus. And they're trying to entrap. The scripture says they're trying to entrap Jesus. So they say, hey, we found this woman in adultery. Should we stone her or shouldn't we? And if you remember the story, Jesus begins to write on the ground. He says, hey, any of you who are without sin, go, go for it. Go ahead, you can stone her. And then it says that one by one they dropped their stones and walked away from old to young, right? So, so, and the thing that 
that Carl said that really got me thinking about this is that he said, you know, she really was guilty. She really was in an adulterous affair. She really had wandered to the other side of the fence. She really was a sinner. And she hadn't only wandered to the other side of the fence in God's eyes. In in a lot of ways, she'd wandered so far over the fence, she wasn't even really acceptable in society's eyes. She's gone against the the social norms, even more, not more than, but but to the people watching. So she was probably shunned. It was a small village. It was a small town. Everybody probably knew her as being that kind of a person. She probably had all kinds of ridicule and shame and disdain was poured on her. But when everybody walked away, and it was just Jesus and the woman. He bends down and she lifts her up and he looks into her eyes and he sees her beauty. He sees her real beauty. He doesn't see her story. He sees her beauty and he calls something out of her. He offers her forgiveness. He offers her acceptance, not shame, not, not condemnation, nothing degrading. He says, no one here condemns you, nor do I. And then he says, go and leave your life of sin. And when you think about the story, think about how hard that might be. This is a person who's entrenched in a lifestyle. And with one interaction from Jesus, he says, go and leave your life of sin. And, and historians would say, biblical scholars would say, she did just that. She became a devout follower of Jesus. Go and leave your life of sin. But the reason she could leave is because she looked into the eyes of God. The reason she could leave is because she experienced God's love in such a profound way that the thought of going back to another lover to fill a void in her heart would have known that she would be leaving what she had in Christ. There is this picture of knowing God that inspires her to live a life without sin. And the truth of the matter is we are all like the woman caught in adultery. We have all wandered to this side of the fence. In one way or another, we have all sinned. The scriptures are clear. We have all sinned and fallen short of what God wants for us. But the story of Noah, the story of the ark, is that God has made a way out. That God has given us Jesus. He is our refuge and our strength. The question is, which side of the fence are you on? Really? There's this invitation in today's message. And I'm not just asking whether or not you've ever accepted Christ. And for some of you, you're on this side of the fence and you don't have any understanding of what what it means to walk with Jesus. And can I just tell you, it's not that complicated. Jesus bent down, stood there with the woman, looked in her eyes and said, believe in me and go and leave your life of sin. It's about accepting the truth that the stories of scripture are true and that Jesus is who Jesus said he was and he wants to give you freedom. And if part of what keeps you from making that decision is I don't want to give up all the fun I have, then you've failed to see how entrapped you are in your own sin. You've failed to see the the havoc that it's wreaking in your life. And so some of you are going to feel the call of God to come back to this side of the fence. For a lot of you, you've been in church your whole life. And you know Jesus, but you also know there's something in your life that makes you keep wandering over the fence. And maybe today's the day to let go of that. The story of Noah, the story of the ark is that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is what gives us refuge in the storm. The scriptures tell us that if we draw near to God, that he will draw near to us. Maybe today's the day you need to make a commitment that I am going to put aside what I had and draw near to God. I'm going to accept what Jesus has and allow God to impute righteousness to you.
The other passage that came to mind a lot as I thought about this is just to be still. Maybe we just need to be still and know that God is who he said he was. My prayer for you, my prayer for us as a church, I sat with the worship team this week and, and talked to them a little bit about this. We exist to make God known. Every Sunday when we sing, every Sunday when we teach, we want you to know God more because knowing God more will keep you on this side of the fence. It's not about self-will. It's not about trying harder. It's about knowing God. When I feel that desire to walk into something I know I shouldn't have, I should immediately say, God, I want to know you more. Help me to understand why I would even think about something like that, knowing that it's going to take me away from you. I want to know you more. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for a children's story that has so much profound implication for us as your followers. Lord, I pray that we would be your sheep and that we would stay on the side of the fence that you have called for us, not because the fence is confining, not because the fence is limiting, but because there's freedom and protection on that side of the fence. Help us to see the fence as being something that you put in place for our protection because you love us, because you want us to have life of freedom in you. Lord, change our hearts. Help us to see you more. Lord, for the people in this room who, who just don't know you, I pray that today you would reveal yourself to them. That is an act of your spirit that doesn't come through my words. It comes through you. So for those who are here, Lord, I just pray that you would impress yourself upon them, make yourself known. For those of us who have wandered outside of the boundaries and are living kind of a double life, Lord, I pray that today would be the day we put that aside and that we'd come back to the green pastures that you've called us to. Lord, help us to be the church you've called us to be so that we can have the impact you've called us to have so that we can make you known to others. Thanks for who you are. Thanks for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we have kid stuff starting in just a few minutes.